I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Jean-Marie Fourier on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Very well. Thank you. It's really an honor to have you here. It's a pleasure coming uh, for the interview. So uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about the history of uh, the domain that that you your family has in, in Burgundy. Um, so your father was, was working with the vines, and the reception in America wasn't... Uh, he was known and respected, but... It had some up and down periods, and and what what happened from your perspective? Well, basically, the the domain foyer has been existing for five generations. Um, unlike every family in Burgundy with uh, the up and down period, but uh, one of the sad things which happened to my father when he was uh, fourteen years old, he lost his dad uh, in a vat during fermentation. They only found him the next day. So when he was fourteen years old, he's been sent to his great uncle, uh, who was Mr. Fernand Pernot in Gevray-Chambertin, and, and a very famous uh, vigneron of Gevray. So at the age of 14, he was told to start his first vintage. Uh, and uh, he has made uh, some amazing wines, but it was labeled at the time under the domain Pernod. Then later on, uh, it was Pernod Fourier during the 70s. Uh, but his first vintage was uh, actually 1959, and I think it started to be Pernod Fourier around 1975 or 76. Um, what happened during the 80s? My father uh, is a wonderful man, but he's probably one of the less diplomatic person you can meet. And uh, it was that period, mid-80s, where Robert Parker was really pushing the growers in Burgundy using 100% New York. And uh, in the cellar, basically, Mr. Parker said to my father, Monsieur Fourier, I think your wines would be far, far much better if you was using 100% New York. And my dad said, excuse me, but my job is making wine, yours to describe it, but you're not here to tell me how to make it. So here is the door. So the following reviews about the domain after that uh, from Mr. Parker was saying that we was one of the dirtiest cellar of Burgundy of a producing yield. Anyway, 
uh, we lost all our markets, export markets, but also French markets. And uh, we had that period uh, during the second half of the 80s and until I came back in 1994, where selling the wine for Domaine Fourier was very, very, very difficult. And uh, to the point that I, I had to, to early 90s to go and sell some in supermarkets. Nobody wanted to buy them. We used to supply lots of uh, uh, free Michelin star restaurants of France and uh, they let us down uh, as soon as Mr. Parker wrote this about the domain. And when I took over in 1994, I've contacted many, many restaurants, many places, say, look, I, I've been taking over after my father and I'm doing something different and offered uh, to send samples and nobody wanted to receive them. Amazing. I mean, considering today that you're one of the most sought out producers in all of New York, I mean, everybody wants Fourier on their list or in their retail shop. That's, that's amazing. So I, I, I think probably I've been, uh, I've, I met, uh, life makes sometimes things beautifully, but, but I did meet Neil Rosenthal at the time uh, when I, I just took over and with my first vintage, he was looking for somebody in Gervais Chambertin. And uh, uh, that's how everything started. Neil was my first client. And, and as my first client, uh, he's been supporting the, the domain and promoting a lot on the US market. And thanks to him for where I am today, because uh, he was not taking the bet of promoting a, a known domain. He was taking the bet to promote a domain that you should not even taste. So he has really rebuilt and reconstructed all the image of the wind for you for the US market, but it has been the, the beginning for me of uh, more confidence into myself, but also more finance coming to the domain and the ability to reinvest and developing a, a bit the business and improving the quality. And what are the different vineyard sources that you draw from for your wines? What are the different crews and how might you kind of describe them? Well, the domain is producing uh, wine uh, around 14th appellation. Um, one of them, we start by Bourgogne Blanc, which is a vineyard standing just at the step of Chambord Musigny, uh, which is the, the, the first entry level wine. Uh, we are doing, but I'll probably speak by the, the geography from south to north okay. of, of the Côte de Nuit. Uh, we are producing a Vougeot Premier Cru Les Petits Vougeot, which is uh, a fairly unknown Premier Cru, but surrounded by three very good neighbors, which is Chambord Musigny Premier Cru Les Amoureuses, uh, the Musigny and the Clos Vougeot. So it's it's... One of those small locations which have an amazing potential, what I call a very good value wine. Then we are producing also some Chambord Musini Village, Chambord Musini Premier Cru Les Gruanchers, uh, a little bit uh, in the best year, two casks of Maurice Saint Denis Premier Cru Clos Sorbet. Uh, a Maurice Saint Denis Village, Maurice Saint Denis Clos Solon, which is the name of the location of this village. Two different types of Gervais Chambertin village. One is called Gervais Chambertin aux Echezeaux, which come from, from the south side of Gervais Chambertin, just on the border cross of Gervais Chambertin, of uh, Maurice Saint-Denis. Then another Gervais Chambertin, Vieille Vigne, 
but actually everything is behaving at the domain, but it comes from the north part of Gervais Chamberta. And these are two, two villages which are still very interesting to taste side by side because the two vineyards was planted in 1928. Uh, but that's the two extreme side of the appellation of Georges Chambertin. So it's quite fascinating to look at those two villages. Then after that, there is a range of premier crew in Georges Chambertin, which are Cherbourg, which is standard just below uh, the Claude Bays. Uh, there is, after that, completely in the north side of Gervais Chambertin, uh, Gervais Chambertin Premier Cru, Le Goulot, which is a very, very small Premier Cru. It's the total surface of, of it is 1.8 hectare, uh, which I think is, should be around 5 acres max. Uh, Gervais Chambertin Premier Cru, Cherbourg, Gervais Chambertin Premier Cru, Combo Moine, Gervais Chambertin Premier Cru, Clos Saint-Jacques. And I only have one Grand Cru, which is Griot Chambertin, which is just standing below the, um, the Chambertin. But uh, I, I may produce a very, very limited quantity of this. And what are some of the, you mentioned very old vines in general. What are some of the vine ages? Is it true that Clos Saint-Jacques is over 100 years old? Etc. Yes, absolutely. That's uh, where uh, I'm a very privileged person is to have uh, a genetic patrimony of vines which is pre-war uh, of a selection myself with an amazing genetic diversity and all the vineyards on, on, of an average of uh, 50 to 60, I'd say minimum today to 100, 110 years old. And so it's it's Missal and it's it's old vines and as you say that was kind of a gift from the past. How have you interpreted that gift maybe a little differently than what came before? Have you altered any practices in the winemaking uh, that you've maybe introduced on your side that weren't present in the past? Well, uh What's been interesting to look at has been the evolution of uh, the selection and also the perception by people, by the, the vigneron and the people who are planting vineyards about the arrival of the clones. And uh, I think there, there is this, um, this technical choice you have to make. Should I keep the, the oldest raw material? Or should I uh, plant in clones? Because all the scientists are telling me the clones are more resistant to the disease uh, and, and they are more consistent. Uh, well, anyway, everything has been done basically since mid-80s to promote for the clones. The thing is, when you talk to many people who are growing Pinot Noir around the world, um, everybody is telling you that one of the main problems with the clones is the yield. And green harvest, dropping fruits in uh, July or August on the floor, is a practice which only exists since the clone exists. That problem didn't happen when it was a selection massal. What is the purpose of a selection massal? It's a bit... You're, to imagine that your piece of land is like a country, and you, you build a country with... Uh, millions or thousands of people with a different genetic patrimony. It's a nonsense to build a country with, with just one, to create a millions 
uh, of clones of one person. But that's what have been done for the vineyards, and that's what I'm against too. So my philosophy at the moment, uh, if I have to replace some vines over here, over there, who might die, uh, I still make my own selection from the vineyard, and I'm not searching for the perfect the most perfect vines. Um, they all have to have different characteristics. And I think that's what makes also uh, its contribution to the complexity of the wine. Which are some of uh, some of my most favorite. Um, but it does seem like maybe one, uh, once the grapes uh, reach the winery, maybe there have been some changes. I, I tried to close St. Jacques 95 from Fourier. And I, I thought it was a wonderful wine, but it didn't, quite remind me of the same quality of um, the way the structure was and the kind of fruit that I saw. It was clearly the same fruit, but it seemed a little different than some of the more current vintages, 06, 07, 08, 09, 10, that I'm familiar with from you. And I, I just, I'm curious uh, how you have interpreted that fruit that, that maybe has changed over the course of your time since 94. Well, um, I've been improving vintage after vintage uh, on my knowledge and my experience. But as you said, 1995 was actually my second vintage. And uh, the first vintage I did, 1994, I sold it all in bulk to the local negotiant in order to be able to pay the taxes for succession to start to, ah. to take over the family business. And so if I see in 94, it's a fake, huh? It's a fake. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist at all. So, uh, and, and thanks to my parents to have been uh, such avant-gardes to do that because the cost of the land today is completely crazy. But 1995, I was trying to have an identity and uh, I was working uh, for the Mendra in Oregon in 93 and came back in 94 and, and my mind was very open to every technology and, and I've seen many other techniques than just what was made in Burgundy uh, early 90s. Um, and one of my approach in 1995 was to say, what about trying a bit with stems? Because the, that's what my grandfather used to do. And uh, I, I agree with you that the 95 is, is, stylistically speaking, a little bit different because I kept some stems, uh, 30 to 40% into the vintage. And to be frankly honest, it didn't suit it me. It didn't suit it my taste. And then after that, I stopped using using stems. I see. No stems today. No stems today. No, there wasn't any in 1996. When I say no stems, I mean when you work with a very good distemmer, which works very slowly, you still have maybe five or ten percent of stems going through. But uh, it's all about preserve because I'm very uh, selective on. Uh, on keeping as much as possible the berries as whole as possible uh, after being distemmed. So for me, the idea is to, to have over 95 to 98% of whole berries after distemming. I see. And is that why there's such a purity? I mean, part of the reason why there's such a purity of red fruit to your wines. I find a real clarity of fruit signature in a Fourier wine. Uh -huh. And I, I think it's uh, it's a whole process where, of course, it starts by preserving lots of whole berries because through the intracellular maceration, 
you are extracting inside of the berries some uh, the, the, some profile of aromatics which are really focused on very nice light red fruits but after that it's about preserving them and keeping them so through all the élevage I, I am the less interventionist as possible Maybe a bit more people attend to, uh, to to do the same élevage I am doing today, but I, I think I was probably the first one in Burgundy when in 1997 I decided to leave the wine for reds on lees and not even racking them. No, there was no batonnage at all, but there was uh, no racking after malolactic fermentation. So red wines on the lees and and not racking and not racking for 16 18 uh, 19 months in total and do you feel that preserved more primary kind of red fruit uh, character to the wines because it had been exposed to less air in the movement of the racking uh, well if you work with a volume of casks which is a little bit older as soon as you put the wine into cask, uh, the wine is still loaded of carbon dioxide from the alcoholic fermentation. Then in the following months, the, um, the carbon dioxide will disappear through uh, the, the exchange of air uh, through the, the casks. But then when the level of CO2 is going down, then malolactic will start and produce some more again. So traditionally, many people attend after the end of a mellow to rack the wine, to transfer it in, into uh, an, another empty cask, removing the sediment and adding some sulfites. In my personal uh, view, uh, well, I, one of the things that I understood in 1997 was, why should I remove a natural protection against oxidations that Mother Nature is giving me and replacing it by a chemical one that gives me headaches? So I've tried to understand and, and uh, at the way wine has been made through the past 20 centuries, made by people who had not as much knowledge as we've got today, didn't have as much tools and, and didn't have even a shop on the corner of the street sell, selling some uh, free sulf some sulfites. So less use of sulfite and more preservation of the CO2 gas. Through the Elvash, absolutely. Uh, then after that also I'm very cautious at the time of the bottling. Um, it's very important to me. Uh, I know some people might disagree a bit with me, but uh, one of the things I like to do is the quantity of sulfite I will have had at the bottling when the wine have been uh, racked of the different casks and, and put together is to add the sulfite in three times. But above everything, I do not adjust the free sulfite by what uh, the analyzer is telling me and, and what uh, a laboratory would advise you to, to add or what you think you, you should add. I put a bit of sulfite, I take a glass, I taste the wine, and I see how did it impact the taste of the wine. And I do that through the steps. and. Because each vintage are so different with such uh, different uh, phenolic maturity that 
to my personal view, I think a part of the problem of vintage 04 and some greenness uh, uh, appeared only after the bottling because one of the main responsible for that is the sulfide. Is that true? Yeah, I haven't heard that before, so I'm. I'm <clears throat> well, uh, for I know there is a, it's a vintage with lots and lots of debate, and I completely disagree with that the story of uh, Ladybug. Uh, to me, the origin of the greenness of the vintage 04 is coming back to 2003. So after the the harvest 2003, uh, we had a, a late attack of uh, oidium on, on the vineyards, but nobody sprayed the vineyards uh, after the harvest, after a vintage. But the quantity of sporulation of oidium, and not mildew, but the oidium is a fungus which likes the heat, but you can only cure by spraying with sulfur. Um, so the quantity of spore which came up in spring 2004 was uh, already enormous. And there was uh, at this time uh, a, a certain changement of philosophy for Burgundy with people thinking, I'm going to spray only if I see the, some disease. But the, by the time you see the disease, it's already July and it's already far too late. And then the quantity of sulfur you need to, to spray on your grapes and on your berries is 10 times the volumes you would have requested uh, early spring. So uh, if you follow a bit from the, the process, imagine that people had a massive attack of oidium in 04, spray lots of um, sulfur on their vines, then when the harvest came, because it was a vintage a bit light in phenolic maturity, sometimes arrogance is pushing you to think that you are superior to mother nature. So some people wanted to do a longer cold maceration, but with the cold maceration, it was added with a, a, an extra quantity of sulfite. But still, the wine wasn't tasting green during the élevage. They didn't have this character. And, and, and most of, of uh, wine critics who went to taste through Old Burgundy did not notice this character. But it did appear after the bottling, when the highest doses of sulfite has been added. We sometimes tend to think that at the day of today, we know a lot about analogy, but there's also a lot that we don't know. For example, and I think that's one of the questions with 2004, we are still not able to quantify uh, the amount of molecule of sulfur retained by the berries plus the sulfite used for winemaking. And for me, if you would make a total of the sulfur plus the sulfite above a certain level to, in 2004, if you was adding a bit too much sulfite at the bottling, you was bringing up this green character. Uh, and uh, if you would have done uh, uh, a, a job of prevention early in spring 2004, you would have completely stopped this chain of reaction and didn't have that green character. And have you seen that green character diminish in bottle at all in the subsequent years since it's been bottled? Uh, I think uh, some uh, bottles will uh, see this character uh, dropping down because the free sulfite will drop down in the bottles. But it all, it's all about how affected was the vineyards of each domain and each person. So that's why there's no 
real you can't make a, a general rule for the vintage it, it's a, it's a case of uh, domains by domains through their philosophy and how much they've been affected because there's an extra parameter to add to that and that's what makes burgundy complicated but also beautiful the size of a land being so small even if you was very careful your neighbors could have been a strong source of contamination for you. So if you have been, it depends if you have been uh, very careful during all the growing season or not. But a bit of wind could have blown some spore of, of uh, oidium straight away to your vineyards and, and creating another um, stress uh, or source of contamination. I wonder if we could talk about another uh, vintage that I really thought you did quite well in uh especially in relation to your peers in general in burgundy was 2006 which is a vintage i like a lot from you uh how uh, maybe you could just take me through 2006 how did that uh occur and do you like the vintage i guess is a I'm, very important I'm a, question i'm a massive lover of 2006 if you ever try to have a one bottle of 05 and one bottle of 06 and uh, you invite five friends at home, but same grower, same appellation, and you serve it blind, you'll see that 06 is always the winner. Is that true? It, it is. It, it, it is. And uh, I'm not the only one thinking that. I had conversation with other colleagues. Which That's a very expensive proposition. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? That's a lot of I money, know. one I way know. or the other. Like, I mean, the 05s are expensive. Uh, the the, the, the 05 are very expensive. Sometimes but, closed out. But the, look, the, the, the 05 are made for a long run. Yeah. But what is the, the beauty of 06 uh, through the growing season? Uh, it's having the beauty to have very tiny berries with very good acidity. What happened basically during the growing season of 06, uh, in uh, July 2006, excuse me, no problem, in July 2006, we have we had the same heat than and temperatures in 1976, which was an, an amazingly warm vintage. So during the the period that the berries are taking the, their size, uh, it was so dry and so hot that the berries stayed very very small. But this was followed after that through the veraison, when the fruit start to go through the ripening process. Uh, the the month of August completely have completely changed it was cold as anything uh, and it the fact it was so cold I, I, I remember in August 2006 in France everybody had the eaters back on in the house but the benefit of this it has kept the acidity uh, in, in the vintage and I'm always a mad mad lover of those vintage with tiny berries with very very good acidity what, the main reason why it is rare, it's to understand that normally you, you only have two scenarios. If the berries are very small, it's because you had no rain, you had very good weather, but with lots of sun. And if you have lots of sun, that means you've lost the acidity and the freshness of the wine. So you have good concentration, but with no freshness. Or you have the opposite scenario. You, you had a very cloudy summer with rain, so the rain has made the berries much bigger, so the ratio skin to juice is not as good, 
the wines are a bit more diluted with very good acidity but lacking of concentration. But having this kind of, of a beautiful accident of having very tiny berries with very good acidity, to me, I only see over, over the last decade, it's been 2006 and 2010 having this character. And are you a fan also of the 10 vintage, as, as well, you would seem to imply there? 10 is... If you bring me a contract now to sign for vintage like that every year, I'll sign straight away. <laughs> I like the freshness of your tens. I mean, they have, you know, one winemaker came because uh, I was lucky enough to work with you recently and uh, showcase some of your wines. And one of them was a 10 and a winemaker came from another uh, well-respected estate and he came over and he said, you know, it's it's very, very difficult to create this kind of fruit with this kind of precision and freshness. And I, I read the wine the same way. Uh, I, I really found a, a energy to your tens that was very, very nice. I like tens in general. I have found, and I wonder if you might comment on this, that sometimes it's been the simpler tens that are showing really well right now, uh, maybe more of a large level or certain premier crew, uh, not the most prestig prestigious. I think those might take longer to unfold all the petals. I'm not. I mean, I guess that would be true any year, but it seems especially true in ten, where the wines that I'm I'm really drawn to is just absolutely delicious, or often village wines. I'm I'm not sure what you think. Yes, I think they are very present, very very good value wines because, as you say, they're showing beautifully. I'm tempted to say that the profile, it's the first word which comes to my mind, tends, the, the aromatics are crystalline. It's the purity of a crystal. Uh, the thing which is quite remarkable and, and, and uh, amazing with ten is, technically speaking, if you, if you send an analyze of, uh, of a bottle of ten to a lab, the result will come back that the pH and the acidity is the same than 2008. Really? But such a different profile of vintage. It's just we had so much more phenolic maturity uh, that it, that's what has really made the, the, the beauty of, of a vintage. It's very good, beautiful phenolic maturity with very good acidity, technically speaking. And that's why you, you should never rely just on, on an analyze. It's with a glass in your hand. But the, the, the tens for me will be one of those uh, vintage which will uh, stay in, in memories for the long time. And what I've really loved also about the 2010, it's a vintage which has built its reputation uh, when people tasted them with a glass in their hands. It wasn't about reading anything about the vintage. Each person who just tasted fell in love with it. I've witnessed that. I also thought you did a really strong job in, in eight. You were one of my favorite red domains in eight, uh, 2008. I, I thought the ones were excellent. Oh, I look, it's, it's um, a vintage eight for me where uh, I, 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 I've got this small analogy because I've got some young kids, but I like to resume it that way. Difficult birth of full kids at home, and when they was ready to leave home, you think, I've managed to do something with them. Um, it's a vintage where the weather of the summer uh, and even all the growing season of 08 was the weather of a vintage of the 70s. So I'm, I always like to say that 08 is one of the, it's a vintage of the 70s which comes to visit us. Um, it's a vintage which is really nice, really beautiful, but is also a long run vintage. 
but sometimes the acidity might tight them up a bit. It might scare a bit the people. But for me, it really reminds me of that profile of vintage that we, we used to say to people, don't touch them for 15 years. Unfortunately, people now don't wait 15 years. <laughs> so, but they're stunning wines. I, I like white also. Do people find your wines approachable in youth, though? There is a, a quality of fruit that seems to draw me in. Do, do customers respond to your wines even in youth? Oh, sorry, I did not understand. Oh, um, do you find that people seem to like your wines even when they are somewhat young? I I think the taste of consumers is changing, but mm. because we are living in a society where things are, are getting faster and faster, people don't necessarily have a cellar in their house. Uh, so I think people attend to, to drink the wines younger and younger, and it's, the, it's part of the taste of people which is changing. I'm still making wines for aging, mm -hmm. but I make them with, with the same spirit than the grandfather. It's not... They have proven that it wasn't by over-extracting in the wines that it was giving you more potential for aging. The grandfather used to make very great wines, very approachable when they were young, but they had an amazing ability for, for aging. I can't really blame the fact that people like to enjoy and drink the wines younger. I'm probably one of those persons also committing a crime from time to time by opening a bottle too early. But um, as a friend said to me not such a long time ago, it's better to drink a bottle two years too early than two years too late. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your own Elevage. Uh, you know, when did you decide you wanted to do uh, winemaking? Uh, when did you decide you wanted to follow in the footsteps of your father? And, and what route did did you follow to get there? Who did you work with and who did you see when you were a younger man? Well, uh, my first passion and hobby, uh, and I was uh, studying to be an airline pilot. Oh, okay. And uh, it was uh, late 80s, really beginning of, of, of the 90s. Uh, like that movie Airplane, where the, the big tall black guy gets in the pilot seat. Did that, <laughs> did that inspire you? To, uh, just, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, no, actually, I was so mad on flying that uh, I was the youngest pilot of France, uh, and I had my uh, flying really? license uh, Amazing. when I was 17. Uh, the, the date of my birthday. So I started flying when I was 16, basically. And uh, it, was, it was that period that I was crossing and talking a lot with, with many pilots. And... Um, especially when an uh, army pilot who was teaching me how to fly. And the, the future, because it was a period of a crisis, the, the future as a pilot was not sounding very good with friends who have borrowed so much money and, and didn't find a job and had to pay the, the banker. So I thought, all right, so maybe I might study and, 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 and keep an eye on uh, taking over the family business. But the thing is, you're never really keen to work with your father uh, and with your family because it's probably one of the most difficult on earth to do. But anyway, so I decided to, to go to a wine school and uh, we was requested to do a, a, a training period spread through the year of, of several months. Uh, so there, there was two months, for example, in summer, two months for, for vintage and two months in winter with um, somebody would take you as a trainee. And uh, at the time, it was 1988, uh, I, I applied to work for Henri Jaillet. And uh, he said, well, look, I never had uh, any trainee before, but yeah, you're welcome. And so I worked with him and it was full of, uh, of education. And it was a really 
an eye-opening, but also fascinating for me to see different techniques than just my father's techniques. Then, uh, after I finished my study, uh, I still have done the vintage uh, 89, 90, 91, 92 uh, with my father. And of course, we were still arguing for all those time, to the point that in 1993, I thought, damn, my English is very poor, uh, and uh, I'm always arguing with my father, I, I want to go and work somewhere else. And uh, I've uh, applied and uh, ended up working for the Mendra in Oregon, which was for me that conjunction of uh, the, the possibility to improve my English, of course, but uh, first of all, to, to, to see another vision, another definition of Pinot Noir in a completely different terroir. And uh, I've absolutely fell in love with, of the area and the whole experience. And I have to admit that at this stage of my life, I was really wondering what, what am I going to do? Uh, am I staying in Oregon or am I going back home? Because I, I felt so free and, and, I, and everybody was so kind with me. It's probably a very lovely person. Veronic, but also all the people of, of the of Oregon, the, of the area, everybody was really fantastic. So I've, I've really fell in love of, of the area. And I've always thought, and I still think, if I ever have to leave France one day, that's where I'll end up. Amazing. Maybe you'll buy my old house. I used to live there when I was a kid. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. Uh, Mount Hood. It's Mount not quite Austin, the wine region, but for good for skiing. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, the, the, the strange things which happened is when I came back to France in 1994, I think my father was so scared to never see me coming back again. He said to me, look, boy, I'm working since I'm 14 years old. Now that's your turn. You're in charge of absolutely everything about one thing. He said to me, you do not touch my tractors. And he's going to be 70 in one month. And that's still the case. I still don't touch his tractors. <laughs> He helps you in the vineyards. He's still he? helping me in the vineyards. He's awake at four o'clock every morning, and he's a, he's a very hard worker. And never ever we've been in such in good term. But it probably took us nearly, I'd say, eight years to a decade to understand each other's. And um, what? Because I know it, it's never easy to work with, with with your parents, and I know it does impact other domains. But one thing which has really influenced me is what a friend told me one day. He say. In mother nature, you never have two lions on the same territory. He said, there's a young one and an older one. Either you define the limits, either it's never going to work. And that's how we, we, it's been working for us. So when my father was coming on my territory, by respect, I was leaving him the space. And he was keep saying, I'm coming to see you, and you ran away. So now he, he has left me all the space, and it is only with his tractor. And... and uh, we are working very closely together, so it's 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 a great situation really to work. Uh, but for me, I've been able to really have my identity of making wine uh, through a very simple approach. With a background I was coming from of having difficulties to sell the wine, no stock, nobody to buy it. From the first vintage I did in '94, I thought, damn, if nobody buy it, I have to drink it. I'll make something I like to drink and I'll share it with people. And I've never changed that spirit ever since. And what does your dad think about the wines? Does he tell you? Does he share or is it, does he keep it to himself? 
Well, my father is not a mad, mad wine lover. He, he, is that true? He, he liked his, his job, but one thing which is important to understand with Burgundy is um, there is a, a there was an old generation born of uh, of children born during the war or just after the war, which is my father, for example, is born in 1943. It's what we would call this sacrifice generation. You know, the, the question was asked to them, what do you want to do when you will be older? And my dad said, I want to be a mechanic. And they told him, no, you'll, you'll make wine. So it, they have done this job for all their life by obligation, but not necessarily by choice. And, and of course, it's, very, it's a bit more difficult to, lie, to, to set up the light of passion when you, you are forced to do it. Today, he's really, really happy about the old result. He's uh, enjoying to have a glass of wine from time to time, but he's even happier when he's got a brand new tractor for him in the, in the courtyard. And how has Burgundy changed with uh, the generations? I mean, what have you seen? Mm-hmm. Is it different cars going down the roads? Are there more Americans now? Or are people more open? What is Burgundy like today that maybe it wasn't like when you were younger? Well... The way Burgundy used to sell wine uh, was completely different. Mid nineties, uh, it, it was all about selling to private customers during the weekend. It was from Monday to Friday. You work in the vineyard. Saturday and Sunday was devoted to do, to do, to give tastings, and uh, you was receiving groups of people, friends, mainly Switzerland, Parisian people, uh, and and people coming from Belgium. And uh, when Monday was uh, there, you, you was going back to the vineyard. What's really changed is the export market has, has been uh, uh, progressing, and it did. Uh, it has taken a lot of time to have the interest from the international market because I think. Uh, from the heart, the, the Burgundian growers are, are uh, probably the worst people for marketing their wines. They don't know how to talk about their wines. Uh, but also, you just need to look at, at bottles often. The packaging is, is, is not looking at the best. It's this whole education of every single penny. It's for making it, um, for, for making the wine, not for marketing it. But with the export market uh, and, and new countries, uh, you have some some minimum rules uh, and obligations, like having a, just a back label for your importer. And you think, oh God, there's a, yeah, it can, I, it's good to put an information on it uh, and to explain a little bit what, what's the soul of, of a domain. But it's been really brilliant uh, to 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 see the evolution of Burgundy of exporting through all those countries today because it's such a mind opener and the exchange we're having with people from around the world is really really wonderful. Um, it's it's been also the conjunction of this, the arrival of this new generation of growers, the like for example me uh, around nearly 20 years ago now, but uh, there's also a, a new wave of uh, coming up since around 10 years. And, and that's what I call the, the, the generation of the wine school. 
And at the opposite of uh, our parents, we've all been to wine school and did stupid things together. And it creates links that you, n you never forget when you have finished the wine school. And, and uh, we are we're all friends today and talking much more with each other than it, it did used to be. And I think that's what has also raised the quality of Burgundy uh, on, 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 for the vintages. And have you seen uh, more of a reception for Fourier in the export markets than in the French market? I sometimes hear that it's easier to find Fourier in the United States than in France. Is well, I export over 99% of my production. <laughs> wow, amazing. <laughs> and is that just because that's a model that works, or is there some other reason? No, actually, it, it, it wasn't uh, a first choice at all. Uh, when I had wine for sale at the beginning... Any, anyone was really welcome and placing an order. The, the situation is uh, you, you, you have uh, in the US and, and there is some, uh, around the world some wine critics which are making the step of giving a call and, and coming to taste into your cellar. And for me, it has always been very, very important to, to keep this moment where you have this, this relationship where that person come and taste from the casks and, and you have a window of two hours to taste with his uh, journalist. But unfortunately, uh, in France, uh, there is no journalist working for themselves. They work for a big company and what they do is they just ask you to send samples. And suddenly, if you ever go to some of those tastings, there is 200 bottles standing on the table, which will be tasted in just one afternoon. And there, there's no possibility for you to explain that this bottle is still uh, coming from a cask sample, which is still in malolactic, uh, or having any explanation of your philosophy. So for me, basically, it's I'm completely unknown in France because I've never played the game of sending samples for those competitions of wine. For me, a bottle of wine is made to give pleasure and to share with friends. So that's, that's why I've always say I'm very happy to receive everyone in the cellar. And actually, I've seen the old world coming in my cellar, but never the French, to the point that today... Uh, the French uh, want to discover, want to come and, and buy some wines, but had strong relationships since... 10 or 15 years with some uh, of my distributors and I'm somebody very fidel in, in business so I cannot supply uh, the, the French market anymore even if I have some requests from very really top restaurants. Does that change your um, sort of social standing in Burgundy? I mean, are you known there for the quality of the wines that you produce by other producers that you see, your peers? Oh no, I'm still a complete unknown person in is, the eyes of French Is that really market. true? Yes, absolutely. Like even within Burgundy itself? So uh, 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 a few uh, people who are working on the export market now start to hear about the name of Foyer more and more. So it, it's people we are, tend to cross each other a lot on, on, on the same uh, in the same countries and through the same uh, opportunities. Uh, but uh, on, on, on average, I'm completely unknown in France. Because it's uh, that's sort of amazing. Because <laughs> uh, I've I've seen you at La Palais and how excited people are to try the wines and uh, the you know the excitement that uh, Americans have for for the wines and uh, it's sort of uh, in, in, incredible to me to imagine that in your own place that 
that people don't knock down the door all the time waiting to get in. But. Uh, that's where cultural differences are so fascinating. Um, I think there's a link and an enthusiasm that people are not scared to show in America, which I always find really wonderful and beautiful. I can't. I don't know if the French are more shy or if, if it takes longer. But I think there's maybe a, li a little bit less curiosity. And for me, what, what is always very fascinating, for example, is it's a picture I always keep in, in in mind. If you look at a French sommelier work in a French restaurant in France, he's in a completely different frame of mind and curiosity and and and. and, and work of research than a French sommelier who work in Lo in London or in New York or in Tokyo because he's, uh, he has opened his mind to the world and, and he's got that, uh, that that work of searching and, and meeting people. I think it's all about a question of being how minded open you are. You know, uh, just to bring it back to the wines a bit, I, you showed me recently how... Uh, you uh, sometimes the carbon dioxide will remain dissolved inside the liquid, and then uh, as people drink it, there's a, a touch of a hint of maybe a character that they don't recognize. And uh, you shook up a bottle recently and, and lifted the carbon dioxide bubbles to the top, and the wine resulting out of the bottle was uh, more emphasis on clarity fruit. Uh, and I wonder, um, is that... Is that something that other Burgundians that you're aware of might face? Because I, I I feel like the kind of spritz character that I find in your young wines is pretty much unique to you and maybe a couple others in Burgundy, at least in the Cote d'Or. I mean, I might think of some other producers maybe in in uh, working on granite soils, that kind of thing. But uh, maybe you could tell me more. Is that is that something other people do? I mean, you explained how you try to preserve the CO2. So. Well, for me, it's a part of my very strong conviction that the uh, ability for a bottle to have a long potential for aging, it's not just about the tannins and the acidity. The carbon dioxide is also a third key that our grandparents used to keep, and we have lost this knowledge because we are more interventionist today. Why does people uh, want to remove the carbon dioxide? Because the, the part of the reason that they, they want to be more and more interventionist is the anthocyan, the red pigments uh, for the red wines, with oxygen take a blue color, with carbon dioxide it takes a pink color. I so see. if you want to make more extraction to your wine, you need to provide more extraction. The best example is Michel Roland and Mondovino uh, advising uh, micro-oxygenation. And uh, when we talk about micro-oxygenation, it's oxygen pure at 100%, like you can find in the hospital. So uh, the amount of oxygen you will put in, into the wine will make the, the color of the wine much darker for the fermentation and for the rest of the life of the wine. But if you provide an oxidation, you need to compensate it with a chemical antioxidant, which is sulfite, which will still end up giving you more headaches. If you look at the wines, the old vintage, uh, made a long time ago before uh, all these interventionism, the color was much lighter because they was working more with carbon dioxide. They was preserving the natural antioxidant Mother Nature used to give them. And uh, 
For me, the, I never had any carbon dioxide. I just preserve what Mother Nature is giving me. And a part of the reason I'm able to do that, it's because I am also doing my own bottling. There is no bottling company uh, coming in my, my courtyard with a, with a big truck and, and uh, to do the job. At the day of today, there's still a lot of uh, people who are requesting uh, a company. I'd say, oh, well, probably 80% of wineries of Burgundy are still... Is that true? Oh, yes. Wow, yes. that's a very high number. I would not have thought that at all. It, it, it still is very high number. And I personally cannot consider with my wines that, I've, I've, as I always, as I say, they're a bit like my children's, and... Uh, I cannot consider to have given birth to them, to have seen them raising up uh, at home through the élevage. And the last job you have to do is to give it to somebody else. It's something I just cannot consider. I've got my own bottling machine. I do it the day I feel the wines are tasting good. Uh, I just, I rely totally on myself. But for different purpose, different reasons, quite a lot of people, because it's it's quite technical, you, have, you need to have a minimum of knowledge to a bottling. There's many technical details, but it's absolutely fascinating also to pay attention at, at uh, the bottling. Um, so for me, I preserve this carbon dioxide, which allow me to use a little bit sulfite. So I always recommend when the wines are very young to decant them. And uh, that's, uh, it takes a, a little bit of time, but it's very easy to evaporate uh, uh, through decanting and it keeps the freshness of the wine. If I don't preserve the CO2, I need more sulfite, which will give more headaches to people. And I'm very sensitive to headaches. And as I was saying earlier, I always make wine for myself first and, that, and I share it after that. So I don't want wine which gives headaches. But uh, for example, a thing that I had in mind, I was talking about how technical can be um, uh, the, the bottling and how much you learn. If you do it yourself, I'll give you, I'll give you a very simple example because that's when you stand in front of your machine and, and you look at it. You know, with the problem of the Primox for white wines and the problem uh, with peroxide, which has been sprayed on the corks. You can imagine that the corks are sprayed with peroxide with, at their original shape uh, in, in Spain or Portugal or wherever. But when you stand in front of a machine and you look at your machine, what, what does the machine do to put the cork in the bottle? It squeezes like a sponge, this cork. And that means that you squeeze and release molecules, uh, and uh, would it be just nanograms of molecules of peroxide into your wine straight away? And that's lots of, it's by doing it, it's by having your machine that you think, you stand in front of your machine and you think, you, you think about those things. Uh, I take another example. Um, corks for the last 20 to 30 years uh, have, have been sprayed with paraffin and silicone. 30, 40 years ago, they had absolutely nothing. Uh, there was no paraffin and no silicone. And uh, the side who was going to touch the wine was dipped a little bit into the Mar de Bourgogne, you know, which comes from the distillation of grapes because it was 70% of alcohol, it was supposed to kill the bacteria. To, in the last 20 or 30 years, the only purpose of putting paraffin on the corks is just to make the bottle easier to open. But it has no purpose to be there to make the wine any better or uh, to be preserved any longer. But where it's, a, uh, it's one of those uh, parameters a little bit scary, um, 
I use sometimes a little bit of paraffin for me at the domain um, to uh, wipe the stainless steel tools at the end of the harvest because of the, it's a little bit oily and it protects from oxidation from one vintage to until the following year. And one year I was wiping my uh, press uh, with uh, with a, a piece of paper and, and, and paraffin, but I wasn't wearing any gloves. And suddenly my hands started to be very itchy. And, and I thought, God, if it's not good for my skin, how could it be good for, for the corks? Because it's the same, uh, it's paraffin and silicone. So I thought, how could it be good for the wine? So ever since, I've, I'm now I'm asking the level of paraffin to reduce by over 90% for me. So I just have a tiny, tiny bit, but uh, it's very, very limited. And I can testify your corks are somewhat hard to get out. I, can, I, are, can, I can tell you. <laughs> they are difficult to, to get out. but I, I give I, Which is not a, a, a dig on the wines, which I love, but they can be a little... They can be uh, very much harder, but I do everything I can to, to be sure and warranty that the wine will be absolutely in perfect condition in the bottle. Are there other wineries in France as a whole that have inspired you and your work? Are there particular standouts that you would... Uh, mention or come to mind whether they be in Burgundy or not. Uh, look, um, I, I when I was working in Oregon, I have a friend when I was much younger who told me a Chinese proverb, and, and this has really influenced my life. Uh, I know sometimes people think I'm I'm, I'm crazy when when I say this, but I have to admit we had a couple of bottles and it was under a beautiful. Uh, tree and it was late in the evening but he did say to me he said when you make wine he said bear that in mind he said a lion who tried to imitate another lion is nothing else than a monkey and what he said to me was don't make the wine of drones where you are working at the moment don't make uh, Henri Jaillet's wine don't make your dad's wine just be yourself and I think that's why it's very important to, to, to stand is don't try to copy anyone I think you've done a great job of setting your own way. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Jean-Marie Fourier of Chevy Chambertin. Thank you very much. It was a very much a pleasure speaking with you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.